This week's episode is a special one, for me at least, because today I'm switching chairs from host to guest to talk about my new novel, Beasts of England, with the brilliant Rob Doyle. Beasts of England is a sequel of sorts to George Orwell's Animal Farm, and my attempt to understand the recent rise in populism in the UK and around the world. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and if you fancy reading the book, signed copies are now available on the Shakespeare and Company website. Just follow the link in the show notes. I've been a fan of Adam Boyle's writing since I read his novella, Grey Cats, shortly after I first moved to Paris, where that novella is set. I got to know Adam sometime later when I was hanging around Shakespeare and Company Bookshop, and I got on so well with him that when his fabulous debut novel proper, Feeding Time, was published to rave reviews in 2016, I couldn't help but feel happy for him. The Guardian praised his megawatt talent, the Irish Times called the novel riotous, and the Spectator called it intensely refreshing. Beasts of England is Adam Byles' most audacious and thrilling work yet. A sequel to George Orwell's Animal Farm, it races headlong into the fray of contemporary British politics in all their chaos, cynicism, and menace. This being an Adam Biles book, however, it's also funny, gripping, irreverent, and to quote Harry Kunzru's cover blurb, a slyly topical, insidious pleasure. So I'm delighted to welcome everybody to this online launch of Beast of England. And uh, yeah, it's a great, great pleasure to launch this one, Adam, Thank from you, afar, uh, with, with Notre Dame there in the background. Um, so when I first got wind of Beasts of England, I was uh, excited by this sense of trespass, of mm -hmm. audacity, like I said, uh, that you had decided to write a sequel to one of the best known novels by possibly the most famous British author, writer or fiction writer anyway of the 20th century. I had to read it and find out how you'd gone about it, what you'd done, how you'd handled the material. Um, so just to kick things off, and I'm going to ask you, of course, to read a bit of the novel a bit later to give people mm -hmm. a, a flavor of it. But uh, was there any sense of fear or trepidation about going there, about taking on George Orwell? And indeed, was there any kind of friction from the Orwell estate that you may have had to contend with? Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because when I started telling people about the book, people did say things like, oh, that's bold or that's, you know, that's brazen, that's audacious, all of which I think are kind of code words in publishing for that's a bit stupid, what the hell are you doing? Um, and honestly, no, like when, when writing it, um, I didn't, I didn't have any fear at all of that. I think in part because of how it came about, because, um, so I wrote it, the first draft anyway, in the, from about February, to June in 2021. So when we were still kind of in semi-lockdown, I was still uh, in large part on furlough. Um, my daughter was a few months old. And so it was a really weird headspace where in a lot of ways I was quite cut off from, from everything actually, from, from, from work, from other writers, from family, from, uh, you know, because of <laughs> lack of, lack of time and sleep from books in many ways. Um, and so I don't think, I ever really had a sense that it was a it was a dangerous or a risky thing to do because I I don't think I ever really had a sense that it would come to much. Like when I started it, it really started from the feeling of is this is this something I can pull off? And generally, when I have that feeling, the kind of pre prepared answer is no, probably not. And you know, I'll probably work on it for a few you know a few days, a few weeks, and ultimately put it in a drawer and start on something else. Um, but it was an idea that had um had sort of had, had implanted in my mind and had grown um to the point where I couldn't at least resist giving it at least a bit of a go um then when the sort of the momentum built and I realized um well you know it's for readers to decide if I pull it off or not but like when I knew at least I was going to finish it and was going to start showing it to people 
um, then I did start to, to wonder a little bit, oh, oh yeah, maybe um, not so much that it could cause problems, but actually something else, because you, you asked about the Orwell estate. And I think, so I tell a few different kind of origin stories of this book, and all of them I think are true in, in different ways. So one of them is about the fact that, you know, when you when you have a baby, basically every book is set in a farmyard because it's all about noises and stuff. And that, that will put me in mind of, um, of, Orwell's, of Orwell's book. But another one, and we'll probably come on to, to, um, to, to, to the rest uh, later on, um, was that Orwell had come out of copyright in, ah. I think, the beginning of 2021, at least in, in the UK and most of the world. Uh, not in the US, I have subsequently discovered, slightly to my annoyance. Um, and as a result, um, I, I remember a conversation I was having with a friend and we were just kind of riffing on ways that we might um, exploit the legacy. And so, you know, obviously there was 1985, which turns out already exists. Um, and then, you know- 1985 exists? <laughs> there was a kind of unofficial thing, I think from the eighties or nineties that okay. um, did, yeah, uh, I, can't, I'm not, I can't remember the name of the writer now, but, um, unauthorized anyway rather than unofficial yeah, yeah. and then I and I just threw out like a sequel to Animal Farm and then that idea just kind of stuck and because of you know you mentioned the the chaos and um and menace of British politics and indeed I don't I'd say probably world politics uh over the previous kind yeah. of five years I suddenly that that idea of like okay maybe I can sort of take this this kind of this fable like this fabulous world that Orwell created and see if I could apply it to to what was going on what was going on now in in many ways in a quest to, to understand it myself yeah well let's kind of stay on this topic that you've nicely segued into for for a moment um Beasts of England is far more topical uh, I think it's fair to say, even though it's you know it's allegorical and so on, but it's more topical than any of your than any of your previous works than Feeding yes. Time. Um, as an Irishman, you know I've looked on the madness and the populism and the kind of uh, everything that's gone on in UK politics, mm -hmm. British politics over the last however many years, particularly the last seven years, you know, since Brexit, with um, fascination, a mm. kind of appalled uh, horror, all of that stuff, a bit of schadenfreude, you know, <laughs> I think that's a level. Um, but um, it, mostly with fascination, you know, I haven't read all that much fiction. I've read some, um, you've possibly read more than me, that kind of addresses it in this kind mm. of really full-on way that again even though we're talking about an allegorical novel it still addresses it in a really full-on yeah. way so um just tell me a bit more I, and this is what i think this is how i think this novel could really strike a chord with people you know because it's like i said when i heard you've done this i just had to find out you know i had to read it to see what you did with it but um brexit farage you know i think um uh, Boris Johnson, you know, it's not it's not really uh, giving too much away, I think, or it's it's not wrong to say that um, there are certain characters and certain situations in the novel which fairly um, clearly map on to some really big, obvious kind of already semi-fictional, hyper-real, grotesque characters and situations and events that have happened and that have kind of manifested in British politics over the last however many years so um just tell me more about that you know your 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 sense of it you're there you've lived in paris for how many years now uh 18 and a half 18 and a half yeah. so um but you clearly you know keep an eye on what's going on and just tell yeah. me more about this decision to write so topically uh about yeah politics. i mean it, it's odd like just about being here like i obviously i follow french politics and i'm dual citizen now and I vote in French elections but it's long been the case that I've, I've understood that I, I I have opinions about it and ideas about French politics but I don't feel it in the gut in the way that I feel British politics um, and in one sense it's kind of ridiculous you know I've been in a few years time I'll have been out of Britain as long as I was in it 
Um, and yet, you know, I still have family and friends and connections to Britain. And so, um, you know, there's that connection, but I do think it's also something deep, more deeply rooted than that. I think there, you know, I think the, the political kind of climate that you grow up in um, is going to sort of, is going to get you in a more visceral way than the one you move into. I mean, it took me a long time to even feel legitimate about having an opinion about French politics, uh, because, you know, who was I as this outsider to come in and, uh, and, and sort of and pronounce on it or, you know, pretend to, to, to understand it. Um, I think it was Hemingway um, who said, um, in fact, I, I say I think because I don't think I've read this. I'm actually quoting uh, an interview I did with Rachel Cusk in which she quoted this. So I'm, you know, I'm going to assume Rachel uh, was quoting accurately um, something along the lines of, you know, you can put Hemingway said you can put politics in the novel if you want, but that's a thing that people are going to skip over. They're the pages people are going to skip over in a few years' time. Um, and I think there's 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 a lot to that. Um, and yet, you know, people on, on at the same time, people still read Animal Farm. Uh, yeah, in we, we, so we did it at school. I don't know if that's a thing in England, but it yeah, was on their yeah. leading search syllabus. That it was, was recently named, I think, like Britain's favorite book, the favorite book that Britain's read at school. Um, oh. And so it's, you know, because just like Orwell, it was, you know, his book was extraordinarily topical, like from the, you know, obviously it was describing very precisely the, the situation in the USSR, but even that final majestic scene where, uh, you know, you look, the animals look from man to pig and pig to man or whatever and can't tell which is which. Um, Orwell actually said about that, that he sort of, he thought he'd been misunderstood because people saw it as kind of the pigs and men becoming the kind of cons cons reconciling in some way, whereas he'd based it on a, the Tehran conference. And in fact, he he wanted to give an idea that it was, you know, it was fractious and a really sort of, you know, they they were they were arguing with each other, but they were still, you know, there was no sense of kind of harmony between the two. So it, it was very topical and yet it endured uh, and it still remains relevant today. So that really interested me how a book could could do both, could be kind of really precisely topical, but also in some way transcend topicality. Um, so back in 2021, because this book is born out of a kind of an anger, a you know, a deep political anger about what's going on and also a deep sense of futility, like watching things that were going on, not just in the UK, actually, but also in uh, the United States with Trump. Uh, also, you know, to a lesser extent, because I know these countries less, but what was going on with Modi in India or with uh, Erdogan or with, you know, Orban. And um, I mean, even there in France, you know, it's it's hardly immune from this, yeah. this populist uprising, this way. Absolutely. And so, um, but this was particularly, I had this moment, uh, I was watching what was going on with the, the pandemic response in the, in the UK, particularly, and not just the fact that it seemed so inept, but also the fact that there seemed to be a kind of a genuine sort of moral vacancy at the heart of um, Boris Johnson uh, and his administration. And I started writing these little kind of sketches just for my, again, for my own amusement, maybe with the idea of publishing them on a blog or whatever, um, which I called a void in a vacuum. And this was something, this was a term that Johnson had used to describe the Liberal Democrats, but to me seemed a perfect description of the man himself. Um, and and I, so what I would do is, um, also because I wasn't in a frame of mind to really write a long piece at that time. So I'd see one of their press conferences and then, you know, when the door closed on number 10 or whatever, I'd write this kind of massively sort of grotesque, uh, sort of repulsive, monstrous behind the scenes look of what was going on in which all of the, you know, the characters were um, were portrayed in quite sort of um, quite sort of extreme and uh, unpleasant ways. But then the trouble was, I'd, I'd read these back a couple of weeks later because I'm not a fast writer and I don't like to kind of write something and put it out there. Mm. And I'd read it and even I didn't really know what it was about anymore. <laughs> And this was like two weeks after I'd written it. So I started thinking about what I could do that could be both express this, the immediacy of this anger I was feeling and, you know, try and make a difference. And I say that with the big caveat that, you know, I, I don't really think that like one book can particularly make much of a difference in the world, but writing books is what I do. So that's the only tool I have. And but but do something like that, but which then could potentially have sort of relevance beyond 
the specific set of circumstances. So that's when I started looking at other countries, at other situations, reading a lot around, um, I guess, the, the dynamic of the collapse of democracy or the sort of the, the moral decline of a country and realizing actually that there were patterns. So um, of course, a lot of it maps quite well onto what was going on in Britain, but also a lot of it maps in certain ways onto what was going on in the US and, uh, and these other countries too, because it was about sort of distilling the, these dynamics in the hope that I might in some way come to understand them a bit better myself. Yeah. Um... Just one more question before I ask you to read a bit of it. Um, well, first of all, did, did I am I right in saying uh, did I hear you correctly there in saying you wrote it or you wrote the first draft or you started writing it in 2021? Is it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Okay. I wonder um, because by, by 2021, you know, as an observer of of British politics from from afar or from across the sea, you know we'd already seen such tumult and upheaval and uproar and nihilism and cynicism and opportunity, the void in the vacuum, as you as you so as you call it. Um, but since since then, it seems to have plunged even deeper into a kind of nihilism. Maybe the peak of it or the mm. the, the trough of it, rather was 2022 you know mm -hmm. um, with the, the the kind of near abject last stand of boris johnson and uh you know the the brief tenure of liz truss and all of that stuff mm -hmm. um i mean i guess you've already kind of answered this in a way but i wonder was there any fear or uh, anxiety that in choosing to write a book, however obliquely or allegorically, that it would nonetheless be superseded by events or anything like that? Was that in the mix when you were writing it at all? Um, a little bit. I mean, there was also the the kind of much more um, egocentric fear that um, with Orwell coming out of, right, copy, uh, out of copyright, like 20 other writers would have the same idea and like, that I'd have to, you know, I had to get this out quickly because if I didn't, yeah. like, you know, somebody else would come forward with their Animal Farm sequel. And in a weird kind of way, it's been quite surprising that that hasn't happened. Like at the moment with like, I've had a, a, a few um, in exchanges with Sandra Newman, who has her book about, her book, Julia, which is kind of a retelling uh, yeah, of 1984. I was, was going to say, yeah. I read yeah and so that. like, that's there, but that that's basically it. And is it? Yeah, or as far as I know, you know, maybe there are others, others in the works, but um, that sort of surprised me. But I, I did fear that the politics would sort of, um, yeah, sort of outrun it. I mean, you know, if you also think that in many ways there's a certain allegory for the for the the Trump administration. You know, by the time I started writing it, Trump was gone, at least from office, um, and so in one sense, you know, that that hadn't endured in the way that. Uh, perhaps people feared it would for a, for a second term. Um, so so yeah, there was there was a little bit of that apprehension, but I hoped that I had at least arrived at a place where it had, as I say, transcended topicality enough that it would it would say something, even to readers who had no idea about about that situation. And in fact, you know, I, what my my dream would be that it would be published in. Um, some language which it would be unimaginable for me to be read in, and somebody would look at the politics in their home country and go, "Huh, okay, I, yeah, this this was written about us, or this has something to do with us." Like, you know, not that I would wish that kind of <laughs> degradation on any other country, but yeah. like to to the hope that it might have that um, that resonance is yeah is there. Yeah, excellent answer. And while you were um, giving it, I remembered. Um, a scene or a, a kind of riff in Money, Martin Amos's novel mm. Money. I know you're a, like me, a big Martin Amos uh, fan, but uh, you know, in that John Self, the kind of uh, mm. you know uh, greedy, obese protagonist or narrator of that novel is reading Animal Farm, and you know, he's, yeah, this is a good book. It's a it's a real page turn, and then eventually, three hundred pages into the novel or something, somebody tells him that it's an allegory about the Russian Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you might have the same, uh, the same fate. 
Um, maybe that's a good time for you. I think you're going to read the beginning of it first. Yeah. To start off. Um, yeah. Maybe it's a good time for it. Please do. So, um, so well, since it's the beginning, I don't think there's a really um, any scene setting um, necessary. So I think, so I'm just going to read the, the very first page, um, which even though I think stylistically, thematically, and in a lot of sort of different ways, it diverges from Orwell. I suppose one of the, my way in was to, to echo a little bit the rhythm of his opening sentences to, and also his, his opening scene. So um, Animal Farm begins in the, um, in the big barn as all the animals are gathering to hear uh, the boar old major sort of um, talk about a dream he'd had about, um, about revolution. Um, and, um, and yeah, so I, it was very important to me to sort of, I wouldn't say exactly pay tribute to, but to sort of, I guess, channel Orwell. Um, I was put in mind of, um, I think, it, God, I'm gonna get this wrong now, but I think it was Hunter S. Thompson who said that, uh, you know, he learned to write by typing out The Great Gatsby on, um, That's right. on his typewriter uh, to get the sense of the rhythm of sentences. And it was a little bit like that for me. It was kind of uh, to, to ease myself into the book, to, to see if I could, I could get the tone right, then it was, it was important for me to kind of to echo it. So I'll just read that first page. Mm. It was a Sunday in late summer. The last of the visitors had left. The floor of the cowshed had been scrubbed. The chicks had been counted and locked in their coop and the lights in the vivarium had been turned off. Another long week on Manor Farm was over. On any other evening, the animals would have taken to their beds as soon as their chores were finished. But this was not any other evening. This evening, there was a fluttering and stirring across the farm as beast and fowl alike converged on the big barn. First came the sheep and alpacas who jostled for the best spot at the beer troughs while the rabbits bobbed between their hooves, hoping to catch any splashed dregs. Then came the cows, among them Clive the Bullock and Marguerite the aged Holstein, who was looking for a bed of straw to settle upon after her long walk up from the large pasture. A dozen hens roosted in the eaves by the door, the pigeons lined up along the edge of the cash desk, and the geckos congregated on the vast east window. Cassie the mule came in, moving carefully so as not to step on a gang of rats. She was closely followed by Flaxen, the roe deer, and a gaggle of geese. One of the geese, Haw Haw, was already deep in conversation with the farm's stocky bull terriers, Dunning and Kruger, whose gold teeth flashed as they quit the dusk of the farmyard for the well-lit barn. A trio of magpies had perched with characteristic aloofness atop the postcard carousel, and a family of dormice had settled in the display of plush toys. The animals kept coming, score upon score, until every patch of floor, every inch of rafter, every tabletop and every book display was occupied by trotter, hoof, talon, paw and foot. Finally, the pigs swaggered in on their hind trotters, acting like they owned the place. And tonight, in a sense, one of them did. Thank you. Okay. Um, I do want to get back in a while to, uh, if we have time, to, to politics and to all of this populism stuff, which is so rich and interesting. And uh, But that's a good um, way into something else I want to ask you about, um, which is animals, writing mm -hmm. about animals. Um, you know, you've written about... Um, very old people, very elderly people in a in a care home, and and all sorts of other stuff. But I have no experience of writing animals, you know. Uh, and apart from Animal Farm, I struggle even to think of mm -hmm. that many novels I've read. I'm sure I'm sure I could think of a few if I put my mind to it. But um, did it present any special? Difficulties, challenges, um, pleasures, delights, freedoms. Uh, it, it was interesting what you said at the beginning before we got into this very, you know, intense, angry political stuff. You were saying it was basically the fact that you were um, immersed in children's literature. I think that's what you said. Yeah. yeah. You know, in, uh, in, in, because, you know, you're reading so many bedtime stories and so on that suddenly you start thinking in kind of animal prose and animal mm. characters and so on. But writing an entire novel for adults mm -hmm. um full of animals uh tell me about that yeah I, I mean i think first of all there is something about the allegory which obviously which lends itself to 
the use of animals. I mean, obviously predating Animal Farm, there was all of Aesop's fables, for example, which, um, which I think traditionally you have the idea of a certain animal having certain character traits. And it's a very, um, it's a very easy way, I suppose, um, traditionally to, to, um, to tell the reader what kind of character you're dealing with. So, so as you know, as soon as you put an owl in something, people assume they're going to be wise. If you put a fox, people assume they're going to be um, sly. If you put a sheep, people probably think they're going to be a bit stupid or at least going to follow the, the pack. Um, and I think to an extent, that's what Orwell did. Um, and to an extent, that was what I had in mind I was going to do when I started writing this book. And yeah, I quickly realized that wasn't gonna be possible for, for several reasons. Um, I'm laughing because it's, it's not really funny. It's quite a, it's kind of at a personal level, quite a, a tragic story, but um, a lot of, I mean, people who, who have the physical copies they will see at the back, uh, there's a photo of um, Bobby, oh, yeah. who, was, who was our cat. Um, the co-author, as you described. Yes, well, this was the thing is that, so and one of the other origin stories I tell for this book is that there was this weird kind of time between about 5.30 in the morning and 9.30 uh, at this particular moment where our young daughter would actually sleep. Um, and yet that was also the moment that the cat started to wake up and want attention. So in um, quite a heroic fashion, I would get out of bed. I mean, it wasn't heroic because I was on furlough. I didn't have anywhere to go, but like I would get out of bed and be with the cat in order to let uh, my partner and our daughter sleep. And then I thought, well, since I'm up, I might as well, I might as well write something. Uh, and that's, you know, when this book started, and he was always on my lap as I was writing, like it was done on the sofa with him and at the little table. And, but he was being really, really annoying, you know, getting us up, making it 5.30 and making a real pain of himself. And so as I was writing the book, um, the sort of the, originally the kind of the, the representatives of the kind of <laughs> let's say the the neo-fascist tendency in politics were going to be the cats um and i won't i won't go on to say who they are or leave that as a sort of as a surprise but then about three months into writing the book he died like suddenly and quite traumatically and you know over the space of a few days he got sick and he died and that did, that did two things it was sort of firstly the sort of oh, i can't i can't make the cats do this now. like you know that wasn't that wasn't what he was he was you know he was a pain but he wasn't like he he's not comparable to these people yeah. and so so you know I, I i reconfigured that role but it also made me realize that actually you know attributing a specific kind of personality to each group of people wasn't really possible anymore like uh, maybe Orwell just about got away with it. Um, although I do think like my, my, one of my big reservations with Orwell generally is I think he had a tendency, and I think he knew this to an extent, that he had a tendency to romanticize the working class mm. um, and sort of, and in doing so, dehumanize to an extent. And I, I use the, that's quite a strong word. And I don't mean to, to be as a criticism, but like, I think anytime you romanticize somebody, you take away a sort of, an element of their complexity. So with the character of Boxer in, in the, in the in Animal Farm, he, you know, it's, it's, he's, he's this noble working. Is this the, the horse? This is the cart horse, yeah, who I guess yeah, finally yeah, yeah. gets sent, the loyal cart horse who finally gets yeah. sent off to the knacker's yard. Um, and I was actually, we, I don't know, I have a sense that we live in a time now where you, you need to acknowledge that sort of groups of people, groups in society exist, but they're not homogenous. And in fact, to suggest they're homogenous is not only doing a disservice to each group, it's also kind of oversimplifying the, the situation. So even though, you know, there are, there are groups of animals in this book, which in certain ways represent different parts of society, mm. I was very keen to, to make sure that there was, you know, not one group of animals who were for example, really good and, and you know, and, and upstanding and one group who were, were really terrible and devious. So, I mean, one example might be the geese who in a certain way sort of map onto to journalists. And, you know, and I do have a lot of fun with um, having a bit of a kind of a, a jab at certain types of, 
of journalists and certain types of publications. But at the same time, one of the geese, Martha, is, um, is you know, one of the, I think, the noblest and bravest and, uh, and, and most kind of, um, well, most, certainly most important characters in the book. So um, there was, it was important for me not to, to use animals as kind of a shorthand or a cipher for, for that, for that, those kind of, those kind of assumptions. Then there was a the thing which I didn't really anticipate, but I had to reckon with, was the kind of the physicality of these animals. Um, so Martha befriends, who's a goose, befriends Cassie, who is a mule. And these are very different animals. So if they're going to go for a walk around the farmyard together, how is that actually going to work? Like, you know, you know, there's, 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 there's very different things going on. How, and also how would Martha, the goose feel standing next to, I don't know, some, so this creature who weighed like about a hundred times more than her, what would it mean for, for them to be friends? And so sort of, at that moment, it sort of, it gets a little bit out of the allegory and more into the sort of, I guess, the physicality of it. Also different lifespans as well. Like once you start introducing more animals, it, you know, it really it radically alters the the perspective each animal has about things in the farmyard and also for example the history of the farmyard which of course becomes quite an important thing did, did you know all of this stuff about the lifespans of different animals or did you have to do a lot of research about it because i wouldn't have a clue i mean it wasn't a lot of research like i yeah. um i'm quite a lazy novelist and i do i think as much research as i think I would need to do in order to get away with what I want to do. Um, and so, you know, there was a lot of kind of Googling, how long does a mule live? Okay, what is a, you know, what, what is the difference between this type of goose and that type of goose and uh, and things like that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was not something I had anticipated, uh, but it wasn't, you know, I don't want to, I didn't sort of surround myself with veterinary textbooks in a kind of, uh, sort of bestial William Burroughs kind of way. Okay, I'm I'm tempted to go against the uh, the complexity and sophistication of your your response by asking really dumb basic questions like what, what kind of animal would Rishi Sunak be if he were transposed into fiction or Liz Truss or something like that? But I won't. I will yeah. uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe later we'll we'll come back to it. Um, but I want to go uh, onto Orwell actually, um, just because. Yeah, like I said, this was the big surprise. Oh, so that's what Adam's doing next. You know, he's he's uh, he's wrestling with Orwell, and you know, he's uh, and this this book, which you know, we everybody has read. You know, which which you read in school, even here in Ireland, like I said. Um, but I mean, you and I have had any number of um, conversations about writers, about contemporary writers, about uh, writers we rate highly others which we don't rate so highly whatever um and i know some of your uh, key influences and inspirations and that kind of thing i think actually after uh, i remember after, this is a digression but after martin amos died recently uh you were you and you were one of the first people i was kind of texting about it and we were talking about that and how much his work had meant to us and that kind of thing but what does George Orwell mean to you? How big a figure is he in your pantheon? Before this, you know, official conversation began, we kind of had a, a pre-conversation and you talked about uh, Tristram Shandy, um, Moby Dick, uh, Don Quixote, and then Ulysses as four major novels in your kind yes. of um, inner pantheon, your constellation. What about Orwell? Where, apart, you know, apart from or even including animal farm where does he stand yeah. um it's a funny one because i mean i like you like i think probably most people listen i read animal farm at school i was very impressed with it and i, I you know it 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 left a mark on me like i'd never had a sense that i would write in that vein but i always really admired the precision the concision the um just the the sort of yeah i suppose the kind of in a weird kind of way, quite minimalist beauty of it. Um, the fact that it had endured. Um, and then I, I went on to, um, to study philosophy and politics um, at university and read a lot of Orwell 
at that time. A lot of his, I mean, I'd, I'd already read 1984 by that point. Um, and I must admit, as a sort of, as a novelist, uh, I've come around a little bit on this and I'll speak, maybe speak about that in a while, but I, I, I did feel, and it's going to sound almost like heresy, but I did feel there was almost something a bit plodding about his prose. Um, like his his ideas were there. You mean across the board or in specific books? In his fiction, I think, actually, um, strangely. Like, I think, um, like, it didn't, the, the I, I admired, like, the concept. Like, you just take something like Big Brother. Hmm. In those two words, I mean, it's difficult now because everyone pretty much knows the concept of Big Brother before they read the book. I think I might have been of, like, more or less the last generation of people who didn't. And it's probably the same as you. Yeah. I, and like, and like meeting those hard. words on the page mm. and getting a sense immediately of what we were talking about here, of all of the kind of um, everything that entailed just through those two words, like was so exquisite. Mm. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, the novels didn't particularly transport me sort of stylistically, let's say. And then um, I read a lot of his uh, his essays, a lot of his journalism, um, and felt those were where he really spoke to me. Um, and yet, even even those, I'd say probably twenty or odd years ago now, I kind of I left behind a little bit. I kind of I felt perhaps I was a little bit done with Orwell I, that I'd kind of got him in some way. And you know, moved on to to other interests. As you say, like we talked, we talked about uh, a lot of them. A lot of the kind of <laughs> I'm not necessarily going to name any names, but like a lot of the perhaps kind of quite dangerous feeling writers, people who would sort of give you a kind of friction of kind of oh God, can wow, can 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 you do that with with mm. words and ideas and and like and that and that kind of excited me for quite a while, and then. Oddly, my, I felt this kind of return to Orwell um, in the last kind of four or five years. And I think it was for a couple of reasons. I think partly there is a certain nostalgic street to it. I mean, of all of the English writers, he is probably the most English. Um, yeah. and, as, and as we talked about, like, I've been out of the country for almost two decades now. Um, and yet I think there is something. I mean, actually, you mentioned Hari Kunzru, who was very kind to gave me a a blurb for this book like he he had said after reading feeding time about how english my aesthetic was and i think that is absolutely true and i think some of the most important influences on me not sp specifically books but actually comedy i think is one of the things like shows like the young ones or you know comics like viz or things like that there's a certain kind of english strain of humor uh, an English way of doing things, which which actually probably goes back to Tristram Shandy as well. Like there's a certain eccentricity and absurdity, a sort of um, a, in certain ways, a fundamental lack of seriousness, perhaps in, in, in certain writing on certain things, which very much appealed to me and very shaped me. So I think coming back to Orwell in a way was kind of accepting that about me as a writer as well after perhaps, you know, 15 years of trying to be a dangerous European writer, realising uh, that was perhaps not, <laughs> not exactly what I was. Um, and I also do think with Orwell, the thing, particularly at this time, is that he is a writer for whom writing is, I would say, a moral act in itself, um, by which I don't mean that he is a writer who is trying to perpetuate a certain morality or trying to, to tell you what to think or make you think in a certain way, but who sees the act of writing, the gesture of writing as a moral gesture. Um, and I was trying to think of other writers who I thought did this as well. And there's, there's actually very few, I think. Like, I think Camus is somebody for whom writing is a is a moral act. Um, contemporary writers, I mean, I mentioned Rachel Cusk earlier, I think that's true. I think Miriam Taves, the Canadian writer, has this kind of, this kind of urge as well. Um, and I realised, you know, we've talked about my, some of my motivations for writing this, and part of it was, in a sense, wanting to, to perform a moral act, wanting to, to not, um, you know, not in a sense, not just be writing for me, wanting my writing to embody 
um, a moral gesture at this time that perhaps I felt moral gestures were necessary. And Orwell seemed to embody a, a sort of a way of doing that. Now, I think, you know, he gives in his um, essay, I think it's called Why I Write, is it? Or How I Write, Why I Write, I think. Why I Write, yeah. yeah. He gives these kind of these rules. Um, and I think even, even I think the last rule he gives is like, if any of these rules make for bad writing, feel free to ignore them. Um, but I do think that is perhaps what was a little bit behind what I, you know, 20 odd years ago, perhaps dismissed a little bit offhand as a bit plodding writing, which is actually this quest for clarity, this quest to avoid obfuscation, to avoid, um, you know, this sort of, I guess the, the sort of the deceptive magic tricks that writers can sometimes use to sort of to skirt around things or to kind of blow smoke in the eyes of um, of their readers, and that, and it felt at that time when 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 I want, when I started writing this book that you know not at all to put myself on the level of Orwell as a kind of a moral person. I know that's not the case, but like I felt I wanted I felt the need to sort of make at least a um, a sort of a, a gesture in that direction. Yeah. Interesting. Um, just all that stuff you say about language and obfuscation and so on reminds me that 1984 itself, so much of it is about um, the political perversions of language um, for, for, for malign ends and uh, the, the misuse of language and the politicization of language. Actually, I had the same experience of you that, you know, Orwell was very much a, 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 an author that I read a lot of at a very young age, you know, one of the first authors I read. Um, but a, a year ago, I was in Singapore on a residency for a few months, you know, and Singapore is kind of a totalitarian shopping center on a small island. Um, so while I was there, I reread, um, you know, what was the probably the key novel of my teenage years, 1984. I found it extraordinary all over again, uh, really remarkable. And I kind of agree with you. I'm getting off topic here, but um, I agree with you that his prose can be plotting sometimes and all of that. But in that novel, it, it didn't seem to me so. It just everything about it seemed uh, immaculate and wonderful and still so sinister and shocking. Immaculate. I like that yeah, word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so in a couple of minutes, we're going to take it to uh, the the audience uh, for some questions and answers. I, I wonder if there are any questions and answers and if people know that they're welcome to uh, put some, I think into the uh, the chat panel. I think that's how we're doing it, right? Um, so yeah, any, if anyone has any questions, uh, feel free. If not, I've got plenty more. We can keep chatting for a bit longer, but um, feel free to put them in the chat panel and uh, we can ask, Adam, in a couple of minutes. But first, how about uh, another reading? I think you're going to read from uh, later on in the novel for yes, us. Yes, 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 yes. Where did I say that was? That was like page. Oh, yes. Um, so this, this is, yeah, a little later in the novel. Where, so um, already there has been a, a, a change of hands uh, at, at the among the pigs about who is who is um, running the farm um, and what do we need to know? So the pig we meet at the beginning um, was uh, was called Buttercup. Um, I hope it's not too much of us to spoil it. So Buttercup has been has been dispatched um, at this point. Um, and there is a, another pig in control. Um, I don't think I need to give you his, um, his name. Um, and the... Um, but the, the pig you meet here is a pig called Curly, who uh, is a Baston pig, um, a race I realized after writing the book is actually extinct, um, which, uh, but these are pigs who had kind of quite a thick pelt of fur, so it would often sort of get mistaken for, for sheep. Um, and this is a moment just where um, the alpacas who um, Basically, on the on the farm, they'd been on the farm for several generations, um, had um, been more or less being kind of, you know, treated, lived alongside and treated in the same way as the sheep. Suddenly, find that that is no longer the case. I think that is uh, everything we need to know. So I'll just read these these couple of pages. 
Since the arrival of the first breeding pairs of alpacas, several generations earlier, their troughs had been filled with the same chewy green balls of Pilkington's organic fodder that the sheep ate. One day, however, as the spring equinox approached, the alpacas noticed that their troughs contained, grunchy, uh, contained crunchy grey cartridges. The taste and texture of this new fodder left the alpacas in little doubt that it was a lower grade replacement. The alpacas were curious to know why they had to suffer this new fodder while the sheep continued to dine on Pilkingtons and petitioned Curly for answers. Soon after becoming first beast, Ribbons, so is the new first beast, had appointed Curly as Manor Farm's quartermaster, a move that the geese had declared an ingenious way for Ribbons to neutralise his erstwhile rival. For quartermaster was a thankless job. Over the years, the animals of Manor Farm had come to consider being well-fed their birthright. They therefore felt no obligation of gratitude to the beast that ensured the, fa the farm's supplies. If there was a problem, on the other hand, it was the quartermaster who was blamed. Curly appeared on the porch at once, almost as if he had been waiting for their challenge. It was brought to the council's attention, he whined, that each alpaca consumes twice as much fodder as each sheep. Fairness requires, in these straitened times, that the money spent on fodder be the same for each individual animal. Since portions cannot be halved without starving your kind, a high-quality replacement fodder was found. But let me reassure you that this new fodder necessarily meets the stringent quality controls imposed on us. Some of the alpacas seemed to accept Curly's argument, others looked less convinced. But our wool, our wool sells for three times as much as the sheep's, piped up one of the flock's younger males. Surely we pay our way. You most certainly do, my dear Camelid, Curly retorted, with the scrupulous politeness for which he was known. But you must see that it would be terribly unfair to discriminate on those grounds when the price of wool is something over which your poor brother sheep have no control. Before the alpacas had time to consult on this, Curly dipped his head, narrowed his eyes, and spoke again. I also hesitate to remind you that this change would not have been necessary had your adored buttercup not also bankrupted Manor Farm. Several of the alpacas later confessed that a chill had passed along their spines when they heard this. Still, Curly added, should you wish to pursue the matter, I would happily organise a consultation with all concerned animals. But there are five times as many sheep as us, bleated the same young alpaca. Five times, Curly said with a thin smile. That is unfortunate. The young alpaca had one more question. Have similar savings been made on the pig's fodder? That is a very interesting point, Curly said, for which I do not have the answer at my trotter tips. But rest assured, I will make every endeavour to investigate and keep you abreast of whatever I can snuffle out. He turned and strutted into the farmhouse. It took Curly an entire week to respond further, and when he did, it was a very convoluted pronouncement, read by a more junior pig. In order to maintain the correct functioning of their brains, Curly wrote, it was necessary for the pigs to eat a highly varied and nutritionally rich diet. Nevertheless, the pronouncement went on, Curly would speak to their supplier, a merchant with a name unfamiliar to the alpacas, but which sounded something like Fortnum and Mason, about where such savings could be made. Great. Okay. Thank you, Adam. Uh, so we've got a batch of questions here. Uh, I think I, I, I got it a bit wrong. I meant to say put the questions in the Q&A box, but it, it doesn't really matter. Either one is fine. I'll tell you what, we've got about four or five questions. I'll, we'll get through as many as possible. I'll just read them out to you, Adam, and okay. uh, you can um, answer. So first one from Michael James. I wonder if you could speak to the perhaps overuse of Orwellian by those on the right wing, at least in the United States and Australia. And uh, I presume it has made its way into Europe too, he says. Yeah, um, I think Orwell has become a little bit like one of those figures like Hitler, when as soon as they're brought up in conversation, you realize any genuine discussion has probably ended. Um, I wouldn't honestly limit it to the right wing. I think Orwell is one of those writers who has been appropriated and reappropriated and co-opted by all sides of the political spectrum. And I think that's one of the reasons that actually when I had finished the book, I realized perhaps what a slightly dangerous thing I'd done because every, every side of the political spectrum feels incredibly possessive over this writer. Um, and read his texts um, assuming um, that he is on their side. 
Um, and yet he was very much explicitly a man of the left, was he not? Yeah, he was. I mean, he was. He considered himself a democratic socialist. So, mm. um, but I, th I think where part of the confusion comes in is that he he was also, you know, and I think this has made him a lot of enemies on the left, was he refused to be an apologist, obviously, for Stalin and totalitarianism, which right. he identified, I think, clearer than anybody and before a lot of people. And um, I think there was, was a thing, I mean, I think, I hope it's died down on the left, although I don't think it has entirely, where if you um, if you criticize, if you launch any sort of criticism, then you're in some way uh, enabling enabling the other side. I mean, my my sense of things is a, a little bit more that like, you know, you know, because I consider myself very much of the left too, but like we have to acknowledge, I mean, particularly in Britain, but elsewhere as well, like the left is in power much less than the right. So if you're gonna start, you know, employing certain tactics of kind of silencing people or suppressing opinion or suppressing dissent, be very, very careful because, you know, there's, there's a very good chance that this will be turned back on you um, very quickly. Um, but I think, yeah, when I, when I hear the term Orwellian, it almost kind of glides off me now. Like it's sort of, there's, um, if, if it's not substantiated by some sort of detail or some sort of argument, then um, I just assume the person is trying to shut down the conversation in their favor. Okay. Next question from, uh, excuse me if I get the surname wrong, Ben Pluvier. Pluvier. Orwell's animal farm was based partly in his experience of running a small holding, very unsuccessfully, it must be said. And he tried to put that physical understanding of farming into the book. I didn't know that myself. Did you feel that in writing Beasts of England, you also had to get dirt under your fingernails, literally or metaphorically? And if so, how did you set about doing that while in lockdown in Paris? Mm. Um... I mean, no, was the answer, like partly because, as you say, my my, my context um, disallowed it. Um, as we discussed earlier, like there was definitely a sense of having to to get to grips with the physicality of, of certain animals. Um, I mean, the, the farm, we haven't really mentioned this, but the farm in Beasts of England has become more of a petting zoo than a working farm. So the kind of the dynamic, you know, the the seasonal dynamics of the, the you know, the, the harvest and you know, the sowing and things like that wasn't isn't so important to this. You know, it's much more a, a sort of a uh, a commercial venture um, than uh, or sort of a marketed um, you know, sort of a, a tertiary <laughs> business than um, than in than in Orwell's book. Um, one thing I think it did connect me to was. Again, and this comes back to my sort of, I guess, my Englishness. Um, I mean, so it was uh, Animal Farm uh, is set in, well, so Manor Farm is, is in is in Wealdon, County of Wealdon, so just outside of Willingdon, which is a little bit, uh, so a little bit to the east of where I grew up. So I grew up in in Bournemouth in Dorset, um, and so it's sort of it's not the same neck of the woods, but it's not super far either. Um, and one of the things you things you get uh in these uh in the south of england maybe may, maybe everywhere but i know it in the south of england is brilliant place names um and there are certain moments a couple of moments in the book where i have fun with um listing some of the um some of the fictional place well some of the, some of the place names uh around manor farm fictional and and non-fictional and there is a particular moment i won't go into the detail where that takes us all the way across to Somerset. Um, and one of the things I particularly enjoyed in that was like being able to, to take the character that is making this journey through a lot of the um, rather absurdly named towns in uh, you know, between, uh, between you know, Hampshire and, and, and Somerset. Okay, um, next one, we've quite, Quite a lot, but let's just keep plowing ahead. Uh, next one is from James Clammer, and he says, hello, Adam, many congratulations on your novel. You, the Flounder by Gunter Grass is mm. also a pretty good animal fable. I haven't read this one. Uh, mm. Got any opinions on him or on that Germanic side of fairy tale storytelling? Um, I haven't read The Flounder. I did read uh, The Tin Drum. Tin Drum. 
in a kind of, um, there was a moment I mentioned earlier when I was at university um, studying philosophy and politics, uh, for some reason, in a, I, I don't think it was rebellion. I think it was the moment that I, I realized I wanted to write novels where alongside, I didn't really neglect my studies, but alongside my studies, I also sort of felt this urge to, to, to read a lot of great works of fiction and to, to kind of catch up. Um, so, you know, I read a lot of Dostoevsky and a lot of Proust and mm. a lot of Garcia Marquez and, and, and came across um, The Tin Drum, which I think, if I remember rightly, um, a school friend of mine, Robin, had recommended to me um, and uh, and I read it. And it's just it is such, such an extraordinary book. I mean, it's I wouldn't describe it as a fable. I mean, there are definitely sort of fab fabulous elements to it um but i think yeah i mean i don't have a huge amount to say about gunter cross other than like he was that book particularly was one of the kind of the the formative novels on me when i was sort of catching up and sort of in my kind of autodidact early 20s uh, or late teens and early 20s okay uh the next one is from i hope i'm getting this is an irish name so i hope i get it right quaylen hughes uh did you find yourself thinking about satire as a form and what manners and obligations that form might entail because the contemporary satire as distinct from the comic novel is quite rare i could mm. be wrong she says mm -hmm. uh she had thought of paul Beatty's to sell out as being a satire yeah. but paul resists that cl that classification for the book yeah it's it's a funny thing. I've been thinking about this a bit recently for something um, I'm writing about sort of what is the distinction between allegory and satire, particularly today. Um, and I don't think I don't think it's a very clear one. I, I think like um, I mean, maybe even back in the time of Aesop and his fables, there were there were elements of satire to those. I guess there probably was. But I guess kind of maybe post Gulliver's Travels, the two do seem more or less um, inseparable. Or rather, it's hard, I think, to write a fable without it being in some way um, satirical. Um, I mentioned earlier that you know a lot of my my formative education was with comedy rather than um, rather than with literature and. I would say sort of satire did play a big part in that. I mean, one of the um, kind of um, aesthetic sort of touchstones for me when I was writing this book was kind of, and you know, I, I know this would not be a book, this would be a film, but like, what would it, what would it look like if Armando Iannucci made an Ardman movie? And that was kind of- Made a, made a? Uh, an Ardman movie, you know, the people who did like Wallace and Gromit and, you know, that oh, sort of- Oh, yeah, yeah, sort of, yeah, That kind of meshing of um, aesthetics was something that uh -huh. um, I would kind of, I would come, I would come back to quite a lot. Um, so, yeah, it's something I don't, I don't really have a clear answer about. I, I think there are, in a weird kind of way, the sort of more modern fables, the ones that are kind of, in some ways, sort of purer fables are the ones in which it's actually not really clear what the message of the fable is. Like, so I mean, Kafka is probably the the big example here. Like, all of his work read like fables, but I think it's very hard to come to a definitive sort of understanding about what um, what the fable um, what the fable represents. And similarly, and this comes back to your question, Rob, about the the use of animals and writing about animals. I think it's hard today to write a fable about people because it's hard to write a book which in some way reduces people to archetypes, let's say. So in a way, animals give you an out to that, not a complete out, as I talked about earlier, but that gives you kind of a, a bit of a, a bit of a, um, you know, a bit of a, a way to avoid that, that dilemma. I, th I think it is possible like I think of Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad which is a magnificent book and manages I think to be both a fable a social history and to have genuinely drawn sort of profoundly realized characters at its core mm. um, but I think that's quite a rare quite a rare feat yeah okay next one is from uh, Catherine Boyd she says, hi, Adam, fantastic talk. I am yet to read this book, looking forward to it even more now. 
but have read your first two, which were very different from each other, which is, which is true. And this sounds very different again. Do you, this is a great question. I, I can't believe I didn't think of this one myself. Do you see any <laughs> threads appearing that are starting to define your writing style? I mean, I would just throw in there the, the humor. You talked about, uh, you know, preempted one of my questions by talking about how humor was such a, a big, mm -hmm. you know, the young, I'm, I'm glad the young ones got a mention in this chat. Um, but so Catherine says, do you see any threads appearing that are starting to define your writing style, i.e., what can we look forward to in book four? <laughs> I mean, it's funny that you you say they're so different. Um, and I know you say this having not read <laughs> Beasts of England, but there was a moment when I was rereading Beasts of England, I think maybe even in proof, and just suddenly had this kind of horrible thought of like, have I just written Feeding Time with Animals? Like, is that what I've just <laughs> done? Um, and then, you know, Sam and Ellie reassured me that I hadn't done that. And there was just, you know, there were there were perhaps elements of, you know, I, that were identifiable as a book by me but like that it wasn't um that I, I wasn't just sort of plowing exactly the same <laughs> furrow um I mean I think writers do that and I think it's yeah, something sure. to lean to into that, like you know we we all have one or two points which we want to make again and again and again and we do it from kind of different angles each time um I think I would find it hard to write a book that at least I didn't consider funny um because and this is actually humor is something which Orwell doesn't really talk that much about. Um, like maybe a lot of, you know, a lot of his stuff was written during very dark times. Uh, so maybe it just wasn't um, sort of central interest to him. But I do, I do think generally there's a vein in which if something is considered, if something is funny, it's considered in some way frivolous. And I actually have the complete opposite view. I think I, I find it very hard to take, seriously a book that isn't funny um because I, I it sort of or at least doesn't have some elements of humor in because it it's it seems to show a kind of some sort of deficiency in, in the humanity of the um of the person who wrote it but I do also think there is just a fundamental there's a weirdly kind of a fundamental seriousness to humor um like I, I you know I come back to Camus who I mentioned earlier like this this sense of kind of sort of rebelling against the absurdity of of existence and i think there you know the the ultimate rebellion against the absurdity of existence is to laugh at it um and i think that's something which it may sound like a sort of um you know, again, I say this very knowingly having just written a book about talking animals it might, it might sound like weirdly sort of deep in, uh, in so, so as a consideration but I do think um that is something that is underlying um a lot of my work and and if in some way that sort of that fundamental absurdity isn't contained in the um in the work then uh yeah I don't think it's going to be a book by me <laughs> yeah good answer because I would be shocked and horrified if I read a book by you I can't imagine it you know, that didn't have an absurdist comical element to it, even if it's, which is not to say that it's not deadly serious at the same time. I mean, I think you and I have exactly the same uh, perspective on on, the, on that question. Um, so thank you, Catherine. She said, yes, I, I never ask good questions. So she's happy about that. <laughs> uh, one more, and I think this may be the last one, and then we might wrap up by uh, Seriel Fussert. Again, apologies. If <laughs> You mentioned the vacuum and the void, and that made me wonder about your thoughts or feelings in your novel, about your novel being read and mentioned in conjunction with a classic like Animal Farm, not unlike, say, Jean Reese's Wide Saragossa Sea and other novels that continue an existing strain. Um, I mean, I... The answer I would like to give is that I, now I've written it, I kind of want done with it. Like I think the goal, rather like the the conversation is not mine to have anymore. Um, I want, uh, you know, if if people want to talk about it, I mean, of course it we talked about it in relation to Animal Farm, but like I think now it's out there, it's fixed. It's for other people to 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 respond to, to comment on, should. Uh, 
should they wish. I say that with the big caveat that, you know, I will inevitably pour over the reviews and develop <laughs> grudges or um, or affection for reviewers based on, um, you know, little, you know, where, where they've placed their commas in, uh, in, in particular, in particular sentences. But, you know, my, my ideal position is, you know, I, I created this as a, you know, I suppose what I want to say is that it wasn't, there was nothing, um, for me, weirdly, like, despite the fact it really is you know, a sequel to an existing book, there was nothing contrived about it as an, uh, an artistic gesture. Um, and despite the fact that, you know, part of the seed for it was coming out of a joke of like, hey, a sequel to Animal Farm, wouldn't that be fun? Like, it's sort of the, uh, the, the artistic gesture itself is, um, is very sincere. And it was sort of, I saw it as a sort of a literary experiment which I may or may not pull off and I may not succeed with. And, and so in that way, I think, and I hope it will exist in many ways as a kind of discrete book as well as like, it's, it's separate in some way um, from Orwell. Um, but I, yeah, I will, um, I will try as much as possible to disengage from, <laughs> from responses to it, because as I say, that is not what I feel is my conversation to have anymore. I have made my contribution and should people wish to talk about it and react to it, great. But um, uh, any any engagement I have with that, I will keep very much to myself. Okay, so with that mic drop, uh, we, we can wrap things up. So uh, I'll say thanks a million, first of all, to the people who asked the questions, um, but also to everybody who's um, been tuning in or zooming in it's a great read and i hope uh, it really i can really see it striking a chord you know so let's hope it does um thanks again to everybody congratulations adam thank you for listening to the shakespeare and company podcast if you've enjoyed this conversation it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favorite app or just by sending the link to your friends and don't forget if you'd like even more from shakespeare and company you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.